This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, SOS, retailers and community groups unite demanding government address the growing crime and violence crisis in our communities. And Metro Vancouver's board hikes development cost charges, which will triple fees for a new construction project. Will there be a showdown with the federal government? And with Prime Minister Trudeau putting his own carbon tax on hold, is this the beginning of the end for carbon pricing? And thanks to Artificial Intelligence, a new Beatles single releases this week, edited together from a recording of the late John Lennon playing piano and singing at his home in 1979. Move over, Swifties. The Beatles are back. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's get to our top story. A new public safety coalition of community and business groups and concerned citizens, along with retailers, are calling on the government to end rising crime in local communities across the province. The group calls itself SOS, or Save Our Streets. Uh, Clint Malman is president of London Drugs and a founding member of SOS. Uh, He basically said today that the piecemeal strategies by all levels of government are not working and that they need to act in unison uh, and with urgency. It's a problem continues to get worse throughout British Columbia. Here's Mr. Molman uh, from that press conference earlier today. SOS is a new province-wide public safety coalition demanding that all levels of government step up to end the growing crime, violence, and vandalism and theft crisis impacting our local communities across the entire province. The escalating violence, vandalism, theft, on our streets, in communities throughout British Columbia, is at a crisis point. Every British Columbian knows that the escalation in crime and violence in our communities has reached epidemic proportions and has been building for a very long time. And governments and justice administration officials need to step up and do their jobs to make our streets safer. That is Clint Molman, founding chair of SOS and president and of London Drugs. Now joining me now to talk about the issue is Karen Quicka. She is a member of NAPSA, the Nanaimo Area Public Safety Association, which is part of the SOS coalition. Karen, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Uh, what would you like to see done? I heard Mr. Malman's comments there. Is this more of a legislative issue where it's tougher laws that are required? Is this a question of more police presence in your communities? What specifically, you know, two or three things you want to see done? Well, it's really hard as, a, you know, an average citizen, just as someone, <coughs> excuse me, that's connected in the neighbourhood, to have, to propose solutions that... Uh, government should implement. It's it's not my expertise. It's not my mm-hmm. role. But uh, you know, all of that expertise, resources, um, is available to the government to put mm-hmm. into place. I mean, my role is to provide feedback about what it's actually like to live in these circumstances and how they're declining and how people don't feel safe and how people can't keep up with. The, the constant onslaught of changes that affect and and uh, create a decline in their quality of life. What are you seeing in Nanaimo specifically on the street? 
Well, in in my neighborhood, and I'm uh, within a kilometer perimeter of downtown, Mm -hmm. uh, there's significant changes. We had a deeply entrenched uh, criminal encampment that uh, resulted, excuse me, in a shooting of a local businessman trying to retrieve stolen property. I'm sure you've heard about that. Mm -hmm. Um, We've also got... uh, you know, a lot of violence on the streets. There's the, the evidence of urban decay. We've lost half of our businesses. We have uh, vandalism and graffiti in all of our neighboring buildings. If we have a vacant building, it is a significant problem to the neighborhood, and the neighborhood has to rally, connect with the business owners, connect with bylaw, connect with the city to try and mitigate the you know impending problems that will come with a vacant building. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, when I hear your story, um, I also uh, think of other cities. Recently, I read an article in the UK, there's a 25% increase in shoplifting. Uh, I look at San Francisco, just down uh, down the I five. There, uh, you are seeing almost a thirty to forty percent vacancy rate in their downtown core. Used to be four percent pre COVID. Uh, you see in Seattle as well, boarded up uh, uh, shops. Uh, I've gone down there. I've seen the same thing. Los Angeles, significant homeless population and home challenges there as well. We are certainly not uh, isolated in this. There are communities throughout uh, North America, and some would argue even in Europe that are dealing with this challenge. Do you think government's able to solve this? I mean, is this just a question of a post-COVID environment for a variety of reasons, whether it be just a growing homeless population, whatever it may be? Um, Do you think the provincial government, even with municipal governments, have the tools to actually solve what some would argue are much deeper issues, societal issues that we, we haven't come to terms with? You you make excellent points, and, and it is really complex, mm-hmm. and it's not going it, to, it got created over time. Uh, I don't think it's, personally, I don't think it's entirely related to COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's the evolution of social policy and social culture mm-hmm. that have affected the way we interact with each other and uh, how how we take care of each other as a society. Mm-hmm. So those are those are all things that can change with policy. Yeah, I think you raise a very good point, and I, you know, I, I think there is a lot of room for empathy and uh, and to and care for those who are struggling with mental health and addiction, perhaps, and drugs. Uh, but I also feel, and I can see this just walking outside the building here at CKNW, we're right downtown. We have somehow somewhere along the way not reminded people that they're accountable for their uh, for their um, behavior. And I'm not talking those who are just dealing with mental health and addiction issues, but the general public as well, that somehow you're not accountable for the things that you do outside or some behavior that's become acceptable. Uh, and, and I think you're absolutely right. And I think enforcement is a big role as well, that we just haven't told people there are going to be repercussions for some of your actions and you cannot be doing what you're doing. Um, at the end of the day here uh, with this organization, organization. Uh, what's the, what are some of the next steps? Is it a question of just lobbying your local MLA and members of parliament to, to make sure some of the things that they're promising are implemented? Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it's pressing for solutions and, and it's keeping the reality of life, uh, keeping our, our members of uh, the Legislative Assembly aware of what the reality of life is. Keep, keep them informed and 
pushing for those changes that we need. We need to see. Uh, it's become untenable. I mean, you talked about shoplifting and uh, a member of NAPSA was in touch with me just this last week about a confrontation they had with uh, uh, a shopper in uh, one of the local dollar-type stores. Yeah. And they con- confronted the shopper and said, you know, put all of that away. They had a basket full of items, like 25 items, and they were just preparing to walk out of the store. And the uh, merchant can't do anything about it. The employee can't confront the person and so the shop the fellow shopper did and said you you can't take that and you know there was a bit of a a conflict but he followed the person out of the store phoned the police and the person was actually arrested and it's it's like society is more likely to pull out their camera and watch something happen than actually speak up for the wrongs that are going on in front of us every day and it, that goes to your point about consequences. We we have to we have to express what we expect, how we expect society to function. Yeah, absolutely, Karen. So thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Uh, pleasure. Thank you very much. Hey, welcome back to the show. We're joined by contributor Jerry Mayer Judson. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the pagan origins of Halloween. Let's talk about uh, the other origins, which we were talking about firecrackers, (laughs) uh, fireworks. uh, During the newscast, uh, Kareem Gouda Mm. was uh, talking about, uh, I guess, the police, the yearly warning. Yes. uh, Please behave yourself uh, and the impact it can have on animals as well. But we've mentioned many times you're originally from Calgary. So this is a regular thing in Vancouver. And this surprises you? Okay, listen, the first year that I moved here, I had no idea that people in British Columbia set off fireworks at Halloween and that there are teenagers throwing them at each other and fireworks are a massive part of the end of October. No idea in August 2020 when I moved here. So the whole month of 2020, and that's before they rolled back the firework, or sorry, rolled forward the firework bylaws in October of, I think, 2021. So truly, it's a free-for-all. I was so confused. I was like a beagle in my apartment being like, where, why, why are there fireworks everywhere? What is happening? Happening. Are there guns? No, <laughs> it was just people in British Columbia uh, setting off fireworks for Halloween. You don't, you, did, you folks don't do this in Calgary? Not even slightly, but I just not, it's not been a thing. Fireworks are not a winter thing in Alberta ever. Yeah, okay. And I thought about it just now and I put two and two together and I was like, well, it's too cold to really run around. So. Maybe that's it. But <laughs> There's I, snow right now. So you know what, you know what else we call fireworks in, in Halloween? What? Practice. Practice. <laughs> yes. Because then we got uh, members of the South Asian community who support uh, Diwali. Diwali, yeah. Right. And of then course. of course. Is Lunar New Year for Chinese yes. community, right? And the Chinese like that <laughs> makes sense to me. At least Diwali, there's a reason. Chinese New Year, there's a Lunar New Year, there's a reason, but not just on oh. Halloween. They're oh. nothing spooky about fireworks. Oh, they, they're all over the place. They're not good for animals, and, and it's everywhere. I mean, to Austin last year, we had kids firing them at police. Jeepers so, yeah. creepers. <laughs> well, <laughs> some other, but those. So that's that's a regional tradition. But uh, yes, it is. Well, we, let's focus on the, the global the tradition. Global the, tradition of exactly. So I did. I was curious. We did, we we've trick or trip trick-or-treated my whole life. Trick-or-treating has been part of the cultural zeitgeist for a really long time in the West. So I got to chat with Dr. Sabina Malioko. She's an anthropology professor at UBC and the chair of the program in the study of religion. And she explained to me the human history of Halloween. 
If you look at the roots of Halloween, many cultures, especially in Northern Europe, celebrated that transition from fall to winter, right between the fall equinox and the winter solstice. And for the people of Ireland, they celebrated basically moving the cows back from the summer pastures, um, moving them into the winter pastures where they would be safer, safer from the storms. And they often passed them through bonfires to protect them from spirits that were abroad, that were thought to be abroad this time of year. Because this was uh, thought to be a time when the spirits of the dead were active. You know, this is a time of year when the harvest is definitively over and when winter really is around the corner. And so I think it was natural that our ancestors' thoughts turned to endings and to the return of the dead, the dead coming back for a period of time. Yeah, the baser part of my brain as opposed to like, of course, things are getting cold and scary and dark. Naturally, it's the ending. The harvest is over. Okay. Exactly. But modern Halloween with trick-or-treating is really, that is a pretty recent phenomenon. That really dates to about the middle of the 20th century. Now, by the time that settler colonials were moving to Canada, this time of year, there was also an element of mischief associated with this time of year. So that because of those older beliefs about the souls of the dead being around, there were a couple of practices which are precursors to some of them, what we see, get institutionalized in a different way in 20th century Halloween. One of them was the practice of souling. Bands of young people would go door to door and they begged for cakes for the souls of the dead and in some cases pretended to be souls of the dead so that they could receive a cake. It was considered bad luck to refuse something for the souls of the dead. The other practice was is just mischief making. So just as there were bands of young people who went door to door souling, there were also bands of young people who would play tricks on people during these nights. Things like tipping over outhouses or putting a bunch of dung in a burlap bag and setting it on fire outside your door and then knocking on your no door. No way. Way, way, <laughs> right? Stringing up a rope across a road so that a wagon that was going down the road, you know, the rope would kind of knock the driver off the wagon and then the horses or the oxen that pulled the wagon would just kind of run free. Some of these pranks were really malicious. And when settler colonials came to the New World, came to Canada, in the new cities, the industrializing cities of Canada and of the United States, these pranks took on a really sinister quality. People would set buildings on fire. Entire blocks were destroyed by fire. And this was the situation in the early 20th century. So by the mid-20th century, city authorities really wanted to control this behavior. So trick-or-treat was instituted as a way to control this mischievous and often harmful behavior in that young people were encouraged to go door-to-door and demand a treat in exchange for not tricking the homeowner. And of course, the candy companies got into it big time. And that's how we came to have the modern idea of trick-or-treat. Oh my goodness, that is fascinating. I had no idea that it was sort of to control the youth. Halloween has always been part of a liminal time in our calendar where all of our skeletons literally come out of the closet. You have behavior that isn't tolerated at other times of year, which is suddenly okay, or at least the authorities kind of wink at it instead of putting people in jail. Mm -hmm. You have expression of symbolic ideas around death and the dead, which normally are really kept under wraps in our society. And then suddenly, you know, on October 1st, there's skeletons and ghouls and decomposing things and, you know, really gross things everywhere. People put them on their houses 
Uh, you have kids being able to go up to strangers and demand candy. So it's really an upside-down time of the year when things that are otherwise not permitted are for a short period of time allowed and celebrated. One other thing that I'm curious about is this thing that we do on Halloween as people where we seek out being scared. Do you have any insight on, on that sort of phenomenon and why we might do that? Yes, a controlled kind of fear lets us feel that we are in charge of it, right? So it's one thing to actually be terrified of something. It's a different thing if you know that the situation is under control, you're not actually in fear of your life. And that's what we find in things like haunted houses, right? Which are filled with these tableau that act out scary scenes. And you go through one of those and you know it's fake, but it allows you to feel fear in a very controlled set of circumstances. And so you can, in a sense, laugh at your own fears. You have control over the situation. It's interesting um, with uh, the doctor's comments there that, you know, there's a whole rich history of why we've gotten to where we have in regards to Halloween. Mm -hmm. But it's become such a retail event at the same time now that that I, I think that there's a richness there in story, right? And you lose something with it being so retail. I love kids going out and getting candy. That's all well and good, mm. but it's just a retail side that sometimes you kind of shake your head. Yeah, it gets it gets uh, industrialized and then institutionalized, and then you kind of lose the groovy thing that we all disconnect yeah. in our primal level of this is the end of a season. It's going to get bleak. We all feel weird, and uh, but at least there's little tiny chocolate bars that are very expensive that we can indulge ourselves <laughs> in. So happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you. That's our Jerry, Mayor Judson. Well, more than three weeks after shock cross-border attacks on Israeli kibbutz, communities, towns, and army bases uh, near the Gaza border, many families are beginning to tell their story. For the families, it has been an agonizing wait for answers. The Israeli military says it has confirmed that at least 239 hostages, including toddlers and elderly people, were seized on October 7th. Yanov Yakov and his family uh, have been living a nightmare since that day. His 59-year-old brother, Yair Yakov, his brother's girlfriend, Mirav Tal, who is 54, and his two nephews, ages 16 and 12, are being held hostage. They live near, near Oz, a kibbutz in southern Israel. On that day, Yair's two boys were staying with his ex-wife. Uh, I spoke to Yanov earlier today. He joined us from Israel and shares his family story. It's already been 24 days since this all started. Um, for us, uh, it's a nightmare that we cannot even describe or explain to the world. Um, what I'm trying to do is uh, tell the world that this this thing should not happen anywhere because explain to people it doesn't matter where even here in israel explaining to people who are not in this situation where their loved ones were kidnapped is so hard and when i say kidnapped is the 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 situation is so horrible because if you imagine yourself sitting in your house this is your sanctuary this is the place you feel the most safe Mm -hmm. And if you try to imagine yourself sitting at your living room and then someone breaks into your door, comes with guns, and it doesn't matter if he hurts you or not, but he point out 
the gun to your head and said, come, we're taking you. And that's even even easiest to to imagine than what really happened. Um, I, for me, it was uh, uh, a shock. I'm still in shock 24 days after. I cannot even understand how how this happened how 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 they allowed themselves to do that i mean how how do you do that how do you break into a house and then you use an rpg a missile to shoot to a door in order to break it down so they can take my brother and his girlfriend and when i say that it's it's so hard to explain because you're thinking about the house and someone shoots a missile within your house and it's so hard to for me to even uh, understand that because i was in ganyavne i was in a safe room and i must explain what's a safe room so a safe room is 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 a room made of a lot of concrete and cement that are with a lot of steel in it in order to keep you safe when there is a missile attack right so here I live in Ganyavne. It's uh, around 24 kilometers from Gaza. If you look at it uh, in a direct distance, and we have 30 seconds once we hear the, the the red alert to run to the safe room. And for the people who lived in the kibbutz near Gaza, who really believed they could be good neighbors, right? They lived there uh, as persons who really believed that Gaza could be a good neighborhood. This place could be a good place. They have seven seconds. Think about yourself in a situation where a missile attack is starting and you have seven seconds to run to the safe room that I explained before. And with that, they ran to the shelter, right? They, they ran to that safe room in seven seconds. And then for us, uh, it, it, it was really a, a bad shock because we called Yair. My wife called him actually and asked him, Yair, this attack, this missile attack is not like we're used to. And that's another funny thing. Israel is used to being attacked by missiles. That's another horrific thing. But and they said, yes, we are at the, the the safe room. We are there. And then she asked, what about the kids? Where are they? And he said, no, they're at their mom's house. It's when I say their mom's house, you need to understand that a kibbutz is a very small place, right? There are 400 uh, people that are living in a community together. Mm-hmm. So the house was only 200 meters from there. And my wife asked my brother, can you go and get them? And he said, no, I, I can't. They're shooting outside. They're shooting all over. I'm used to, and that's again, so bad, but I'm used to those missile attacks, but there are Arabs, terrorists outside who are shooting and I cannot go and bring my boys to be with me. So she asked him again, and are you with Meirav? And he said, yeah, we're trying to hold the door here. We're in the safe room. We need to 
keep quiet and his voice was so low. I can tell you that this whole conversation with my wife uh, was recorded in an automatic uh, recording uh, thing in her phone. And I tried with a lot of audio softwares to level up the gain of him talking because he was whispering because they didn't want to want the terrorists to know that they are in the house. And then after that, that was in the morning. And then after that, about half an hour later, we got a WhatsApp audio that even shocked us much more. And um, at that WhatsApp call, we heard Meirav crying for help, really crying for help. And when I say WhatsApp, it was an audio message that came from her. When she said, Yair is hurt, he's trying to hold the door. Please call someone. Please call someone. They're here. They're shooting. And a couple of seconds after that, she said, they're here. They're here. They hurt us. Please call the police. Please call someone. And her voice went down and down in that message. And that point was on Saturday in the morning. And we didn't even imagine what happened there. But we lost connection with them. When that happened, I was in a real, real shock. But I gathered all my strengths and said, okay, and if you need to do something. And I've tried using uh, Find My iPhone. And I've tried even hacking to Yair's uh, uh iCloud account so I could actually see whether they are still here in Israel. And my instinct was if I found that they are still in Israel, I would turn on my car and drive over there just to bring him back, right? Um, but we failed to do that. Uh, they already blocked the accounts, both Yair's and Mayrav's. And I've tried a lot of things since that moment. But we didn't get anything. And after 30 hours uh, that I was trying with all my friends and all my powers to find them, I was sitting in my, in my room where I work usually. And my wife and my sister came into the room crying so heavily. I was shocked. I was sure they're going to tell me that Yair was killed was murdered and so I went out because I didn't want my mom to see that and I went outside and showed me and they showed me a movie a propaganda movie which is another shocking thing uh, where Hamas made a propaganda movie showing how they bombed the door how they bombed the door and pulled out my brother and Meirav from the wrecks and took them to Gaza. When I saw that, I was shocked, but I was smiling. And that's a thing that I, I cannot even grasp right now, that I was smiling while I'm seeing my brother being kidnapped and taken instead of crying like my wife and my sister. And they asked me, why are you smiling? And I said, 
this is a good sign. He is alive. He's not dead. And uh, and that's that's shocking, right? Mm-hmm. You're smiling while you see your brother being taken from his house. And since that moment, we we didn't have any news from them, and 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 no no new things about their status or whether they are okay because Mayrav said he was hurt. We don't know what's their status, whether they took care of my brother or whether they um, took care of his wound and whether they are together. And also, we know about the two kids that were kidnapped from his um, ex-wife, which we are in a, a very good relationship. We're, we're, I, I still call her my sister-in-law, although they were divorced. But she she told us that her her two boys, which are my brother's boys, twelve and sixteen, like I said, were kidnapped from their home while she was talking to them on the phone, and the youngest one said, "Don't take me, I'm too young." So she knew that they were taken also, and from from that both moments. We knew for sure that all four of them have been taken, but we don't know where, we don't know how they are. We tried um, calling the authorities and asking for help, asking for information. The, the, the most uh, horrible thing is that you don't have any information. You're in a situation where you don't know, and not knowing is the hardest. I appreciate you sharing all of this, uh, Yanov. Uh, it, it is important for all of us to hear. Uh, my final question to you is: Are, are you are you getting information from from government, from the Israeli government, in regards to what they are doing? Are they providing any extra information to you? You don't have to share the information, but certainly. But are they providing extra information to you to to help you and your family at this moment? Number one, and what do you want our listeners more than anything to take from our conversation today? So for the first question, so there is a, an officer from the army that is assigned to our family and she's really taking care of us, but for information wise, we don't get anything. I mean, I, I can tell that the, the, the Red Cross haven't been in uh, Gaza or they are in Gaza, but they haven't seen any of the hostages. And and if if I may may request anything from anyone is give us any sign. Now I cannot ask that from the audience that are listening, right? What I'm asking from the audience is to make sure for for them, for the world, not for us, that we must as a as human beings, as as a world not to let this happen again anywhere in the world. That's what I plea to all of our listeners. Like you said, don't make it happen again. It's the worst nightmare that you can't, and I say you can't imagine. 
you know, I hope I answered both of them. You have, and more importantly, I also want to say thank you so much today for for joining us and sharing uh, your story, uh, your family's story in this very difficult time. Thank you so much for your time today, Yanov. Thank you, Jess. Thank you. Metro Vancouver's Board of Directors uh, last week, late last week, approved a plan to hike fees on new developments. Uh, uh, and, and by a hike, I mean substantially hike in some cases. And many have said that that uh, move would potentially set up a showdown with the federal government over housing money. Now, in a majority vote, the board, which is made of, up of uh, municipal mayors, uh, councils from around the region, approved the incre- increase of what they call the development cost charges, or DCCs. And that the DCCs would apply to construction Construction to help pay for billions of dollars in planned upgrades to regional water, liquid waste, and park infrastructure. Uh, essentially, what the, um, those leaders, mayors and councillors have said, growth should pay for growth. Well, what does that mean? Well, according to an independent study done for Metro Vancouver's board, the increases, the DCC increases, would mean the cost of a new detached home, uh, the DCC charges, would increase from about $18,000 to $24,000. The cost of a new townhouse would increase uh, $16,000 to $22,000. And the cost of a new apartment could increase from $11,000 just over $14,000 per unit when fully implemented. Now, the federal housing minister, Sean Fraser, did pen an open letter to the board chair, the board chair being Delta Mayor George Harvey, warning that um, going ahead with DCCs could deter development by offsetting the impact of other measures that reduce the cost of building. So basically saying, look, we as the federal government are willing to cut some taxes on our side, the federal taxes, uh, but don't make up for them by increasing the DCCs, which they have done. But the local leaders here say, look, growth has to pay for growth. We need all of these things. They're not very sexy, but we do need to upgrade our regional water infrastructure, our liquid waste and park infrastructure as well. And that should be paid by the developers who are, you know, leading to all this growth. And yes, we do need it. What do you mean to talk a little bit about DCCs is Dylan Kruger, who is a Delta City Councillor. Dylan, thank you for joining us. Jazz, thanks for having me. Sorry for the long introduction, but I think it's important we have this conversation to make sure everybody's on the same page here. Uh, do you, now, you support the DCCs? Uh, I do, yeah. And just to set the stage, I mean, I, I think you did a very good job explaining it. I don't think I knew what a development cost charge was before I was <laughs> a member of council, and I don't expect many of your listeners would either. But uh, just to set the stage, our region is expected to grow by a million people by 2050. So that's a million more people who need clean drinking water, a million more people flushing their toilets, a million more people taking showers, watering their lawns, turning on the dishwasher. And to do all of that, you need infrastructure. As you mentioned, we need wastewater treatment plants, water reservoirs, underground water mains. This infrastructure is incredibly expensive. So the job for us at Metro Vancouver's elected officials is to find that balance between existing residents paying uh, for upgrades to existing uh, infrastructure and uh, new growth and developers who are for-profit developers paying their fair share towards that cost as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Does any other region do what we're doing in regards to increasing DCCs? Certainly every region in Canada would have a form of development cost charge, and uh, I know many are facing the same uh, cost pressures that, that we are. These are not optional expenditures, and right now homeowners are actually subsidizing. They're paying the vast majority uh, of the cost of growth in the region. And what we're trying to do by phasing in these increases is actually get to a place where it's, it's more of a 50-50 share. So by the end of 2028, uh, basically 50% of the cost uh, of 
uh, upgrades and infrastructure will be paid by existing residents and 50% uh, by, by developers. What's the, what's the uh, breakdown now between uh, business and, and homeowners? Uh, well, I, the, uh, I don't know the specific figures off the top of my head, but I think, uh, you know, we, we are already seeing some people say, you know, that we should be putting these costs directly on to business owners and property owners in the region. Uh, but property owners are already paying these increases, in many cases, double-digit increases to keep up with the cost of inflation. So you're saying and after for- in that time, you're going to be able to get it to 50-50 by 2028 in regards to uh, private citizens, residents, and the taxes that we pay and businesses that are sharing those costs? Uh, well, not, yeah, not businesses, but the uh, the for-profit Sorry, developers. For-profit yeah. developers, yes, I yeah. meant to say that. Um, now, in the case of what the housing minister is saying, uh, you're okay, or the the folks that you're talking with at Metro Vancouver's board, because um, you all do talk to each other, you consult with each other, you still think it's worth going ahead, even though the federal government is saying we may hold back federal dollars and grants uh, to help the region because we're trying to cut here, cut taxes, and you guys are just adding to them. First of all, you know, I appreciate where the minister is coming from. We've got a very pro-housing minister. I'm a very pro-housing counselor. I'm one of the more pro-housing counselors that I know. Uh, but we need to make sure that we're making decisions because they're good policy decisions, not just because of the political implications, which is, I know, sometimes difficult to do. The minister is negotiating with the wrong level of government. This is about accelerator housing fund applications, which individual cities, city of Vancouver, city of Delta, city of Burnaby, are applying for. The Metro Vancouver as a regional entity is not eligible for these funds. So uh, the minister essentially is you know, threatening to, to hold up individual municipal uh, funding applications as a result of a regional decision. So I think it'd be a much more productive discussion to look at individual deals with uh, cities to see what cities on this on the municipal level can do to increase the supply of housing in their own in their own jurisdictions. Uh, so in the in the case of uh, the Lower Mainland municipalities, it was kind of Burnaby in Surrey, where uh, uh, Mr. Fraser, the federal housing minister, paused announcements on 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 those dollars. I think Kelowna, which is one of the cities that did receive millions of dollars in federal funding to speed up construction, but certainly, do you worry that individual communities now could be losing out because of this decision? Well, you know, again, on the Metro Vancouver level, on the regional level, the minister was asking us to defer implementation of these DCC increases for a year. Mm -hmm. Uh, That deferral would have cost Metro Vancouver taxpayers $100 million just for that one-year deferral. So, I think if the federal government was coming to the table with a check for $100 million or some sort of means to, to pay for what they were asking for, uh, I think that would be a re- reasonable conversation. But the choice was to defer and essentially put that $100 million onto uh, existing property tax bills, uh, which would be a significant hit, uh, or, or to stay the course. So we always have time, and, and you know, Chair Harvey was, was, was very good. He put in, a, he supported a motion to put some economic testing in. So we, this, these fee increases are not coming into place until January 1st of 2025. So we've got a year and a couple of months uh, to continue to do our economic testing, uh, to look at the market impact of this. Uh, but I think the Metro Board has been very reasonable in putting a year and a half delay on implementation and then even then phasing in these increases over a three-year period uh, to get us up to a point where growth is closer to paying for growth in the region. Now, I talk broadly about, and you mentioned as well, the broad infrastructure needs. Are there specific projects you can already point to that one day uh, we could be paying uh, for with these increase in DCCs? 
Uh, yeah, well, certainly when you look at the, the significant number, any time a new subdivision opens up uh, across the region, there is a cost to, to dig underground to connect that subdivision uh, into the Metro Vancouver uh, water and, and wastewater uh, treatment systems. We also have uh, existing multi-billion dollar uh, wastewater treatment uh, projects that need to be upgraded, such as the, the $10 billion, that's billion with a B dollar, uh, Iona wastewater treatment plant. Uh, we are a, a, a region that's growing with aging infrastructure. And that cost will be significant over the years, and we have to find the right balance to pay for it without soaking taxpayers with a 40%, 50% increase on their property bills. Uh, is there, uh, for some of these big projects, uh, and we've talked about uh, water especially, um, should the provincial government not be playing a bigger role there, the senior level of government? In many cases, you want, you'll, you'll need grants if there's a $10 billion project. It can't all be paid for the Metro Vancouver voters. I'm going to assume some of those dollars will actually have to come in, in funding from the provincial, even federal government. Yeah, we, we, and we have. We have received small influxes of, of, of cash uh, for these projects. But certainly, you, you look at it, the example of TransLink. When we have transit funding in the region, we typically go with a third, a third, a third. Uh, 30% uh, municipal, regional, 30% provincial, 30% federal. Transit uh, investment seems to be recognized as necessary from senior government in order to accommodate growth growth that senior government is encouraging municipalities to accept. Why should it be any different when it comes to water uh, or sewer? Uh, These are the costs of growth in the region, which are provincial and federal goals. Okay. Dylan, thank you for your time. Jazz, thank you so much. The Beatles will release a new song. Yes, the Beatles will be releasing a new song. Their last one this week, thanks to the wonders of artificial intelligence. The Fab Four surviving members, Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr, announced recently that Now and Then will be released November 2nd. The track is written and sung by late uh, singer-songwriter John Lennon with contributions from McCartney, Starr, and George Harrison, the latter of whom passed away 22 years ago next month. Now, according to the BBC, the tune is an apologetic love song addressed to an old friend to whom Lennon declares, now and then I miss you, now and then I wish you to return to me. Now, after Lennon was fatally shot outside New York City's Dakota building in December of 1980, his widow Yoko Ono gifted the song to McCartney on a cassette. Joining me now to talk a little bit more about this week's Beatles single release is Eric Alper. He's a publicist and music commentator at thatericalper.com. Eric, thank you for joining us today. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this uh, uh, release coming on November 2nd with uh, John Lennon, uh, I, you would we, we wouldn't be having this conversation probably even five, ten years ago, but uh, what an interesting, interesting uh, change of events when it comes to technology and and uh, a well-respected older band. Yeah, especially because I think even the best Beatles fans would think that everything that the group could have been released has already been done on the Anthology 1 and Anthology 2. But thanks to AI and some really crafty work from Peter Jackson, who is the director of the Get Back documentary, he was a big AI fan, and in fact, he utilized the, the mixing capability of AI to separate the noise and the vocals that was in the documentary so that John Lennon and Ringo and George and Paul, they were all sounding perfect you know, using this technology, and that's exactly what Peter Jackson and the group was able to do and separate all the really good stuff from the stuff that they didn't want in the song. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think we'll see more of this, the, these types of songs being released from other uh, artists from the 60s and 70s? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, the one thing that that AI and music has a little bit of a, of a strange relationship now is that about 20 to 25% of the songs that are found on the Billboard Hot 100, the producers and the artists confidentially have said that they're using AI technology. They're uh, they're using it to um, to generate uh, original music and melodies and chord progressions or helping finishing lyrics that the artist might get stuck on. So if it's good for these artists to have hits, then it's probably great for those artists that are no longer around that might have had snippets of songs here and there in the vault that normally we would never get to hear. But thanks to AI, maybe this could be a little bit more of a push to get those songs out there. Do you think AI is long-term healthy for the music industry? It's an industry at its core that's still reliant on songwriting, the ability to express one's feelings, uh, express one's uh, experiences. It is a human endeavor at its core. Um, The minute you give that up to AI, one would argue that it ceases being the traditional music industry. Is it healthy, though, looking 10 years down the road or 15 yeah, it's really hard. You know, I agree with you. There, there's something about a soul and the truth that just AI can't do. But with AI software, you can enhance all that music production by helping out with mixing the song and mastering and helping musicians achieve really professional sounding tracks without leaving their bedroom. So I don't see that going away. But I see that the audience has the final say in all of it. I'm not so sure that they're going to want, say, a brand new album from Buddy Holly that was created by AI. Or in fact, you know, the, the notorious B.I.G., his estate has confirmed that they're going to be having a new album coming out with the help of AI technology. So at the end of it all, the fans will decide whether or not if they dig this or not. But I think in terms of helping the independent artists, I think it's, it's already there. Um, when you look at uh, these songs that are coming out, uh, is there a problem or a challenge for the music industry in regards to songwriting? You know, just in regards to credit, where it would go in regards to having a viable industry that actually pays its people uh, for the work that they do? Or or are we headed to a space where it's going to be a machine mostly and uh, it may not? It's already difficult enough for artists to make a living off this craft of the music industry. Yeah. What's it look like? That's scary. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I think AI is going to help all these musicians protect their intellectual property by, you know, monitoring all of these unauthorized use of their music online. But I think what's going to be really scary is when, um, you know, these kind of pseudo independent producers or artists or just people looking for fun will start mixing, you know, somebody like Jimi Hendrix doing a duet with Janis Joplin and people believing that it's true. I mean, we saw the huge success of tens of millions of streams of the song that was AI created with Drake and The Weeknd, and it took a long time to get that music off of the music streaming services. So, you know, it has a lot to do with music copyright. It has a lot to do with intellectual property. Some artists like Elton John and Billy Joel not only have their 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 likeness copyrighted, but, you know, if you're trying to fool people based on that, you can end up with a lawsuit too. Sometimes it's really hard to find these people online 
on the internet. So I think that for the bigger artists, I think they're going to have a little bit of problem trying to control their image and their sound if the AI technology is open up for everybody to use, both good and bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and what's fascinating about this song is this: it was recorded, to my understanding, in 1979, um, and I believe the uh, the the audio was given. Uh, uh, to somebody by Yoko Ono. It was, I think it was gifted to, to uh, Paul McCartney on a cassette by Yoko Ono in December of 1980. And then uh, they added, uh, to my understanding, uh, Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr added new vocals and drums and bass and guitar. And they also took guitar parts from uh, Harrison in 1995. Uh, so it's it's a little of all of them just sort of providing this, um, this uh, mix of music. And then, uh, are you looking for? Are you looking to be surprised or shocked? I'm just curious in regards to what you expect. No, I, I think it's going to be what what we can kind of expect. You know, the, the three Beatles gathered in the studio back in 1994 to work with Jeff Lynne, who is a, a a pretty big producer. He's worked with both Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr and George Harrison in the past. And those sessions that came off of those demo tapes were Free as a Bird and Real Love, which appeared on the anthology sessions. So we've already seen kind of what that era sounding like could be. Um, but now that we've got the song Now and Then, and then, you know, coupled with the Love Me Do song that a lot of people have already heard, um, I don't know how surprised I'm going to be. I think it's going to be a little bit more mature sounding. But I think that, you know, the older Beatles fans, I don't know if they're just going to buy into it. I think the younger Beatles fans are going to be all all for this because they understand the technology that came with it. I'm not so sure that the older fans are going to think how authentic this is, no matter what the, you know, whatever Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr have to say. I'm all for it. I think it's great. But I think there are just some things that some of the, the fans are going to think, you know, we really don't need another song from them. Yeah, Eric, well, it's going to be wonderful uh, in regards to what it sounds like. Maybe we'll have you back on the show on November 2nd after you've had a listen. Would love to get your critique, uh, that's for sure. Eric, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.